I think manufacturers also have to embrace that change by thinking about how they can tell the story of localized manufacturing and tell the story of the benefits of, of being local. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. We're going to be talking today to someone who has been in manufacturing plants all over the world and firmly believes that manufacturing in the U.S. is a matter of will, and people who throw up obstacles often just suffer from a lack of imagination. We have the right tools and technology. It's just having the attitude that we will figure out how to do it that is sometimes missing. Mush Khan is the CEO and co-founder of Alchemy in Houston, Texas. They are a additive parts manufacturer focusing on the FDM technology with assembly and machining skill sets as well. Before Alchemy, Mush was heavily involved in different aspects of the petroleum industry a corporate executive with a variety of sales and operational roles. He's led large, high-growth teams and managed operations where the manufacturing was done in Asia. And then he decided to move to the custom part world, owning first a machine shop and now Alchemy. He is a man on a mission. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Mush. Jay, thank you for that. I appreciate that. That's one hell of an introduction. Hopefully I can live up to it. Well, you've accomplished a lot. And I actually was looking at your LinkedIn profile, headline says you are a curator of great teams. What does that mean? And why is that your headline? Well, so I thought about my headline quite a bit, Jay, and I thought about what I actually do and what I think I do well. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to put the term curator of great teams and as opposed to creator or leader or anything like that, 
because I, th I think what I can do well is to bring the right kinds of talent together in one space, one room, one company, and organize them in such a way that they produce great results. And so my results are really putting together great teams. I genuinely love it. I think about it all the time. I never get tired of, of being with our teams and coaching people and seeing if I can help them and and probably mostly getting out of their way. So, so it's just something I love to do. And I've been very, very lucky to do it quite a bit over my career. You are now starting to curate a new team at Alchemy. Right. Why Alchemy? Why did you decide to start an additive manufacturing company at this point in your career? Yeah, so I think there are two or three things that I've really been thinking about a lot over the last let's say four to five years, especially as it relates to manufacturing. Mm -hmm. One of them is this whole idea of where we make things. And as I think everybody knows, the United States has outsourced a lot of manufacturing over the years to low labor rate countries like China and Indonesia, India, places like that. So I think that dynamic is beginning to change, that low labor rates aren't the only way to compete anymore. One of the reasons is because labor rates in places like China are going up. So that's one big driver. Yes. Uh, the second driver is that the rise of manufacturing technology around the world, like additive manufacturing, robotics, CNC machining has been around for a long time, data, et cetera, is beginning to sort of level the field. So you can make things almost anywhere. And the cost of labor is becoming less and less a piece of the overall produced cost of a product. And the third one, which is the thing that excites me the most, is that I think there's two or three billion people around the planet who have yet to buy things like light bulbs and phones and cars and bicycles and everything else. And that when once and well, as those two or three billion people begin to consume things, someone has to build all that stuff. And so I think it's a generational opportunity to make things for the world. And, and my thinking is, why not locally? Why, why can't we make it here? And so we decided to focus first on additive manufacturing as one of these advanced manufacturing technologies. But we have a pretty long roadmap of other technologies that we're going to invest in. And our goal is to, to be the manufacturer of all kinds of things for the world for the next 20, 30 years. So it's a bold ambition, I guess, Jay, but it's worth going after, in my opinion. Well, you just said so much right there, and I want to get into several of those areas in depth as sure. we as we talk. Before we get past the point of alchemy specifically, can you just tell us what you were doing at Alchemy and what services you offer now? Sure. So at our heart, we're a contract manufacturing business, and we're focused very much on additive manufacturing to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, and as you mentioned in the intro, um, we've invested in, in FDM technology. We've, we've initially partnered with a company called Robos, which is a firm out of Italy, who now has a presence in Houston. The U.S. headquarters are right here in Houston. Mm -hmm. And they have great capabilities, not only on additive, but also on material science, on, on materials like Peak and other related materials. And so Alchemy is very much making parts for people, leveraging this FDM technology. What's interesting is very quickly, our customers are telling us, what else can you make for us that's along the value chain of this product? And in fact, can you make this entire product for us? And that's what hmm. is sort of pulling us into assembly. And me and my co-founder, Andrew Malik, have a phrase, which is look for the market pull. It's really hard to sell people on what they really don't want. So, but it's good to pay attention to where the market's sort of naturally pulling you. And in our case, we're being pulled to make 
the complete product, not just one piece. But we have to begin somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what, but we, so we decided to begin on, uh, begin with additive manufacturing. It reminds me that a lot of companies think marketing is really complicated. And probably the simplest way to market is to simply ask, whether by email or when you're having conversations with your customers, what else could we do for you? Sure. Yeah. What is, as you're saying, what is related? What is a pain point? Right. And if you listen to your customers, you listen to enough of them, they're going to tell you where you should yeah. be growing your business, right? That's right. And I, and I think that the, the trick sometimes is that you can't always make money on answering those questions in the beginning, or maybe even ever. Mm-hmm. But it's important to listen. And in some cases, we'll solve a problem for a customer and we don't make any money on it. And that's fine, but we're adding value. In my experience, if you repeat that process over and over again, and you're constantly looking for ways to solve problems, eventually customers will give you things to make where you can charge them. But I think you just have to have sort of this really long-term view and think about adding value all the time. And it doesn't always work out in the short run, but in the long run, I think that's how you build great and deep relationships with customers. Yes. Assemblies, that is a definitely an area that customers seem to not get enough of that someone wants to put together a sub-assembly or as you said the entire product themselves because that allows them to focus on what they do well do you have a specific approach in how you're tackling that well first and foremost a lot of hard work Um, it's never easy to do that but we do think about taking our customers through a concept in our business called Um, Alchemy Manufacturing Studio, where we start with understanding what it is they're trying to build, what's the market that they're trying to reach, what what does that market really want out of that product? In other words, how does it it need to perform? Uh Then we take them through helping them with drawings, bills of materials. And I think you know this, Jay, that it's hard to find a good, complete bill of materials that is set up correctly, where you can then take it to sourcing and, and have it properly organized. So we take them through that stage. And then we think about design for manufacturability too. Um, if they want to make something at scale, then what's the best way to make that? What technologies are available? And especially today, what supply chains are available? I think everyone's dealing with supply chains in disarray today. And so navigating how you get raw materials or how you get you know, other sort of sub-assemblies made, I think that's also difficult. And then finally, we take them to, to scale manufacturing. I want to ask you about the whole supply chain disarray. Can you give me a particular story or two about how customers are being affected with the supply chain disarray, particularly in the early stages, probably of COVID, and where the opportunities are for shops? Yeah, I think so. There's been, I think, over the last 18 months, some big supply chain shocks. COVID obviously is a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's sort of these ge- geopolitical factors in terms of um, you know, what's happening with trade negotiations, et cetera, where are companies going to make products, are things coming out of China, and where are they going? Are they coming back to the US or somewhere else? So it's a very dynamic time in terms of supply chain. Um, I'll, I'll give you one example that we were working on this morning. So we've got a customer that is asking us to build something and it requires some acrylic material to, to sort of create a shield piece, piece of that overall assembly. And that particular raw material 
while readily available two years ago, can be actually difficult to find today. And so we have to get really good at searching for suppliers, being creative about where we can find things, maybe realizing that some components that we, we used to buy that were ready to go, we might actually have to apply some manufacturing or machining or whatever to it. So I think shops today are really dealing with raw material supplies that aren't as available as they used to be, lead times are maybe longer, costs may be higher, et cetera. So I think it's just a very dynamic time. But the opportunity there is to be a problem solver for your customer because the customer just wants an easy button. They just want whatever it is that they want to get made they want to be able to, to send it off to one place and that company is able to solve that problem. But sometimes easier said than done though. Relating to your belief that technology is a way to be more competitive and that it is actually in general labor is becoming less of a component in manufacturing across the world, but in particular, the US has higher labor costs and sure. a lot, large part of Asia. How is Alchemy looking at technology? Do you have a technology roadmap? And mm -hmm. which particular technologies have you already implemented and which ones are you going for next? So yeah, we do have a roadmap and it's, uh, it's a dynamic roadmap and it has to be responsive to whatever it is that we're trying to build or what kind of customer opportunities that we have. Mm -hmm. But I think the, probably the most important thing to explain to the listeners, Jay, is that we have a North Star metric in our business where we think about trying to achieve a certain amount of labor per man hour. Uh -huh. And it's a stretch goal for us. We have honestly today, no idea how we're going to get there. Uh -huh. uh, we know we're going to try every day to get there. Uh -huh. So that North Star metric is something that helps us determine what technologies to use. So let, let me give you an example. Uh -huh. So we're working on a project right now that would require some tending robots. And so we're looking at how we would make it with a human manning a machine and what are the costs, how many labor hours go into it. And then we say, okay, we put a tending robot there. Um, how many labor hours can we take out of this particular manufacturing step? So the revenue piece is going to stay the same. But if we can take enough labor hours out because we've got a tending robot, then it's probably worth doing. So that North Star metric is something that we apply over and over in our thinking. Uh -huh. uh, and it's always that thing that drives our technology choices. Um, the other thing I would say about technologies, whether it's tending robots or additive manufacturing or anything like that, I think it's a lot harder than it seems. It's, you know, you can watch a YouTube video or watch a TED talk on all this great stuff, but when you're standing in front of a manufacturing process and trying to figure out how to actually do this, mm -hmm. that's the hard part. And I think the shops that are willing to invest in their own knowledge, their own experience to learn how to do it, maybe in the beginning doing it very, very poorly, but once they figure out how to do it, that's a real competitive advantage. The idea of implementing technology within your business, if you can begin to crack that code, uh, I think that's really important. Tending robots, do you have that skill set yet or... How are you going to develop it, bring those in and, and learn just like you just described? So you and I were joking a little while ago about how you can't learn how to ride a bike by watching a YouTube video. So we have a bit of the skill set. We're going to learn how to do it just by putting a robot in and, and programming it, probably watching it fail, probably getting really upset that it failed so often mm -hmm. and tweaking it and learning from it over time. I think, I think you just have to do it. Now, and the good thing about some of these technologies is they're not terribly expensive. 
So let's say a lower end tending robot might be a $60,000 investment. So that's not nothing, but that's not a, a two or $300,000 decision. So you can afford to experiment a little bit mm-hmm. uh, and get a robot in. And maybe you don't pick the best application for the robot in the beginning. That's okay too. Mm-hmm. Just get it in, try it. You might be lucky enough to work with an OEM that allows you just to put it in for a month or two and try it and see if it works. But I'm a big fan of just jumping in and trying. I think that's the only way to really build that skill set and that literacy within your business is just to try it. And then over time, you can become pretty good at it. What is the particular application for this tending robot? Is it loading and unloading parts from an additive printer? It's uh, yeah. It's actually, a, it's actually for a CNC press break. Um, so it's a customer opportunity that we're mm-hmm. working on. And, and so it's generally repetitive motion. We want to create a lights out manufacturing cell around this particular manufacturing operation. So we think attending robot is a, a good application for something like that. And have you selected the particular brand of robot yet? We're down to two or three. There's one that we like that has a great price point and maybe as importantly, much easier to program. Um, and so once we have that decided and if the customer opportunity really takes off, then we'll make mm-hmm. that final decision. I'm always interested in how you learn in the evaluation process, how you gather the information. So where did you go to find out about the different tending robot Mm -hmm. suppliers, different ones that might be applicable. What particular sources? Yeah, look, it's not fancy. Just start Googling uh, and Mm -hmm. reading articles and reading what people are saying about various products. And I think even though I sort of joked earlier about watching YouTube videos, Mm -hmm. um, I do think that's a great beginning point to understand. But then I also think that the right OEM partner is going to help you too. So calling up somebody who sells a tending robot or sells an additive machine and having them explain to you how to implement it within your business, how long it's going to take, what are the costs of ownership, et cetera. That's also a valuable place to begin. And frankly, if, if you reach out to somebody and they're not willing to do that for you, then they're not going to be a great long-term partner for you anyway. So when we're on additive manufacturing, as we're going through our evaluations on future additive manufacturing partners, that's a very big part of our conversation, which is how do we win together in the marketplace? So you're going to have to teach us how to implement these technologies. We'll share with you market information that we learn about applications and the right kinds of partners tend to come together with us. And by the way, we've had that experience with the team at Robos. It's been a great sort of back and forth as we're both learning together how to implement this technology here in the U.S. How did you first start that relationship? Yeah, so believe it or not, LinkedIn. Um, so really? I think they posted something or I posted something and and once someone on their team reached out to me and we just sort of messaged back and forth. And this began, I think it was last summer. So for about a month or so, it was just sort of a little bit of idle back and forth. We finally got on the phone as we started getting serious about equipment selection, Mm -hmm. got on the phone with them and did a bunch of demos and went through a bunch of other sort of commercial evaluation, technical evaluation. It took us probably about six months before we were ready to make the decision, but that's really where it began. And I'll say this, Jay, that I, I do begin a lot of conversations that way. Almost all of them go nowhere. Um, but you know, I think getting back to our example of just learning by doing, sometimes you just have to reach out and ask people, Hey, Mm -hmm. tell me about what this does. 
And some of them, of course, will immediately try to sell you. So then, you know, we, we tend to back away from that conversation. Right. But we want to learn. And by the way, that's how we think about dealing with our customers. We know that a lot of customers just want to learn in the beginning. And so, um, so we're ready for that. We want to do that. If it turns into a business relationship, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if it doesn't, that's fine too, as long as we're adding value. When you started talking to Robos, did they have their corporate U.S. office in Houston yet? Or did that come about from your conversations and then your collaboration with them? Well, it was on their roadmap for sure, but they did not have a presence in Houston. I think they officially launched their Houston presence in January of 2021. So they were definitely down the road of wanting to come to Houston. First of all, they view the U.S. as the biggest available market. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're all over Europe right now and parts of Asia, but they think the U.S. is a great market for them. And they were so happy that they picked Houston as their U.S. headquarters. So, I mean, I can't say that it was because of us in any way, shape or form. I would like to think that we, we helped to provide some confidence in the decision making that they made to come to Houston. So they're 20 minutes away from us, um, which is great. We, uh-huh. we can pop in. Um, at this point, we're, we're very well aligned with them in, in the marketplace. They don't solve every additive challenge that we're going to come up with, but we think they're a great partner for us. And, um, and we're happy that they're so close to us. Certainly the materials that they're focusing on are not common in the FDM world and definitely are more industrial focused than a lot of the FDM printer manufacturers where there's sort of a more consumer uh, look. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And and, and on that note, Jay, our our view on additive is that it's, well, I should say my view on additive is that it's uh, 80% material science and 20% printing science. And that... Um, so we very strongly favor those companies that have a strong material science background because that's we, we like to see the, in that kind of innovation because that allows us to penetrate um, additive, especially, as you mentioned, in the industrial world. You also mentioned data as a tool in technology. And what do you mean by that? So I think there's lots of layers of data. Um, I think sort of the, the sexy thing is to talk about data as a new dollar and data science and AI and machine learning. In my experience, there's like, there's a hundred miles between where we are and leveraging that kind of stuff. So we really think about data as a first step is to learning more about what's happening in your business. And I think a lot of shops are already pretty good at this, but um, you know, putting in measurement systems for us to understand how long certain steps take, um, understanding more about our customers and how they're interacting with us online. And also more about, costs and how do we estimate and so on. And, and, you know, so we're leveraging paperless parts, for example, to help us with automated quoting. So those are, to me, all forms of good data projects that can help us. I think in the long run, I think you can understand more about the outside world and how it affects your business. So as an example, studying certain parts of how the oil and gas industry works or the upstream oil and gas industry works and how it might affect the demand for certain kinds of components mm. that might be valuable to you and how you market might be valuable to you and how you prepare your production. And so those are more sophisticated uses of data. I think we'll learn how to do that over time, but we're still very much at baby steps. And I think it's like the comment I made earlier that it's one thing to talk about technologies like data or robotics or additive. It's quite another to actually implement it. 
So our view is there's no need for us to rush. Let's get foundational knowledge on how to leverage data within our business. So once we have foundational knowledge, then we can, I think, more realistically get more sort of advanced applications of data. Your discussion of that just reminded me that, yes, data is and can be so simple. Mm -hmm. And as an owner at Rapid, one of the things that I did myself every month is I had come up with some metrics that I wanted to track mm -hmm. and I had a spreadsheet and the rows were, were customer names mm -hmm. and the columns were months and, and some other things. And I would go in there every month and I would put in the sales per customer. I would color code the cell if they were a new customer. Right. And I just tracked a lot of stuff. It was manual and it took a little while, but it helped me really understand. It didn't happen overnight, but I came up with, I'll call it my North Star metric and just simple data, the, the numbers and understanding where your business is coming from, who were the largest customers, because in the prototype world, it varies a lot and just trends. So my North Star metric was a moving average of a monthly average, but on a three month cycle, how many new customers we had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. If they yeah. were less than, if new customers were less than, and this may seem odd to many shop owners, but new customers were less than 20% of sales, then I knew that we were going to see a reduction in sales in the coming months. Right. And that was something I learned to really pay attention to. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. every shop will have their own metrics that they need to, to look at, but this is not stuff that's getting pulled off a machine tool no. and even some of the advanced data that paperless parts gives you, there's just so much data out there and you can simply use an Excel spreadsheet to gain value from what you mm -hmm. do have. You know, if we had, we had QuickBooks in Excel. So well, you, you said something really important, Jay, which is discipline and, or you alluded to it. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's what it really takes. It's actually easy to generate more data than you know what to do with. I think it's harder to have a ritual like the one you just described every month looking at something uh, and then taking action from that. That's really the hard part. And, um, you know, I think there's, there's so many distractions and so many reasons why you should be working on something else or dealing with an immediate issue or whatever the case might be. But having those kinds of rituals and around using data, I think is more important than just generating tons of data. That can come over time, but a lot of it, I think, is around what are the small number of things that you, if you pay attention to, like in your case, percentage of new sales, you, you knew that that's a predictive uh, indicator of what was going to happen in the business. And mm -hmm. I would imagine that you had two or three actions that you could take based on whatever those trends were. Mm -hmm. I think that, to me, that's data and that's how to use it within your shop. And it's easy to get really fancy with all of it, but foundational action and, and discipline is way more important in my yes. view. Yeah. In that regard, you talked about your North Star metric, which is revenue per man hour. What What is your, and I've used this phrase before in podcasts, your BHAG, which is big, hairy, audacious goal. So what's your BHAG yeah. for revenue per man hour? 
So it, uh, it's probably unrealistic, but I don't really care. Um, well, it, that's what a BHAG is yeah, you that's know, right. until, yeah. it, until it becomes real. It's $500 per man hour. And so it's possible that some shops out there are already hitting that. In my experience, it's hard to get to. Mm. Um, and there's a lot that goes into that. So one element is obviously how many man hours go into uh, what you're building. And there you have automation, quality, waste, all those factors go into the denominator. I think what's interesting about the numerator is that's a value thing. So what you're able to charge someone over time obviously depends on the value that you're creating for them. So if you're not creating value or you're not creating as much value, it's hard to drive that numerator. So there's two ways you can get at hitting that kind of North Star metric. And yeah, internal efficiency and effectiveness is, is important, but so is the value that you're creating for someone. Um, and I think the value today is, it's kind of like some of the things we talked about earlier, that things like solving supply chain problems is part of your value proposition. How you communicate mm-hmm. your customers is a value proposition. I think you and I may have joked about this earlier that Domino's can tell us where our pizza is, but sometimes manufacturers can't tell you where your stuff is. And so, you know, just stuff like that can generate value in the minds of your customer. And I think you can charge for some of that. You used a term which some folks listening may not have heard before called value proposition. Can you just describe what value proposition is and then how you think of it? Yeah. So I think, again, in the, in the spirit of keeping things as simple as possible, not for your listeners, but for me to understand, value proposition is how are you improving the life of the person that you're serving? And, and I think it's really important to think about the individual, not the business. So let's say your main point of contact with your customer is a procurement person. It's really important to understand how you're improving that person's life. Uh, mm-hmm. And sometimes it could be getting them the product on time. Sometimes it could be giving them information that they can easily share with their internal stakeholders. Sometimes it could be how quickly you're responding to them. And so it's really about improving that person's life because I can guarantee you that procurement person is not living their life just to interact with their manufacturing partners. They want to do their job well. They probably want to go home at a reasonable hour. They don't want to get yelled at by internal stakeholders. And they just don't want to have to deal with a problem part that requires 15 phone calls back to the machine shop that's making that component. So to me, that's value proposition. How are you improving that person's life? And it's important not to guess at that. I think a lot of machine shop owners or shop owners know this probably intuitively is that you've got to learn about what that particular person, what, what's important to them. And the easiest way is just to ask them, you know, and ask not just one person, but if you can ask half a dozen people, have a half an hour conversation, you can pretty well figure out the things that are more, most important to that particular type of person. I've always thought of that as, trying to be as frictionless as possible yeah, and that the individual, and it's important, as you said, to, to think of it as people, individuals and not the business, but they must deal with other suppliers who create friction and Mm -hmm. drive them nuts. And if you can be as frictionless as possible, then you're just such a pleasure to do business with they will overlook perhaps the slight extra cost yeah. that, that you are charging because 
it gives them more time to focus on the problem suppliers who they have to work with, even though they don't want to. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a great example of that, Jay. When I was a baby engineer about a hundred years ago, one of my first assignments was to, to work on refurbishing heat exchangers in a chemical plant. Hmm. And all I knew about what a heat exchanger was back then was a symbol from my thermodynamics book. And so, which was so basically nothing. So, <laughs> so I had a, my job was to, to, to refurbish about 20 heat exchangers and my boss gave it to me. And my first reaction, was like, I have no idea what to do. So you know, I flipped through our vendor list back then. It was, it was either a, a written vendor list or the, in the Thomas register. Right. Some people would remember, remember that you and I probably those, would. those green books. Yes. Those green books. Yeah. Massive green books. And so, and I looked up our heat exchanger, one of our heat exchanger vendors, and I called this guy up and this was literally 30 years ago. And his name is Glenn Mabry. And he ran a business called metal forms in Beaumont, Texas. And I said, Hey, Glenn, this is Mush Khan. I've been asked to do this by my boss, but I don't know what a heat exchanger is. And so he, you know, there was like a silence on the phone for a second or two. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then he started laughing. He was like, I tell you what, why don't you come out to, to our shop and I'll show you. So I drove out to his shop and spent a, a full day there. And he literally took me through Heat Exchanger University. And he told me everything I needed to know. And uh, he made it really easy for me. He made it frictionless for me because I understood what it took to refurbish a heat exchanger. I didn't even know what to call the individual pieces. I mean, literally nothing. And, and as a consequence, you better believe that that guy got a first look at literally every project that I did. And, and I ended up doing millions of dollars of business with, with him over the next four or five years. He didn't always get it, couldn't always do it, but he was always, always my first phone call. Frictionless. Yeah. You got to be frictionless. You have to be. And I think we all live in this world today where it's too difficult. It's too hard to get stuff done. We all have to make way too many phone calls. And so that one person that's frictionless, there's a big advantage that they have. Well, here's an example is I would never allow an automated phone system at mm -hmm. our company. I made sure that the phone was always answered in person and that mm -hmm. the belief was someone was calling because they wanted to talk to someone. Not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. And I got so much pushback and reasons why it wasn't efficient and it didn't matter. Yeah. We had to take, I'll call it the friction ourselves to be frictionless to customers. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, first of all, I think that's missing. And in today's world, I do think there are certain kinds of information that people can sort of consume on their own, like mm -hmm. you know, oh, yeah. the status, but for the most part, people really do want to talk to humans. I think we have an even greater desire today to, to work with people on a human to human level. Um, and, and you're right, it presents additional challenges within your business, creates additional friction within your business, but I think it's worth it. Well, the beautiful thing is when you create additional friction in your business, then you have the ability to change that to be less frictionless within your own right. business, That's whereas right. the customer doesn't. And the way that they become they remove the friction is to remove you. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think, I think that's exactly the way, right way to look at it. Yeah. In regards to your North star metric, did this exist at any other companies or is this something you decided with alchemy you were really going to focus on? I've always had this concept in whatever organization that I've been lucky enough to lead Jay. And it's always been ridiculously hard and stupid and, you know, 
generally gets a lot of sort of sneering looks and and so on. But, you know, I think it's worth doing it. I think if you can set an ambitious goal, but also understand that you can't get there on day one or in year one, it might be a five-year goal or 10-year mm-hmm. goal. And if, if you're able to communicate it throughout the organization that this is a catalyst for us to do something bigger, then it's worthwhile. And, and in my view, there's something very important about picking a goal that is quote unquote unrealistic, um, mm-hmm. seems unrealistic. I think the more ambitious the goal, the more likely it is that you're going to throw out all your prior assumptions about how you're doing things. You know, a 10% improvement on something is, is very, I mean, it's alluring to get trapped in that kind of a goal because you're just going to make incremental improvements to your business. Mm-hmm. But a 10x improvement kind of forces you to rethink everything. And that's hard to do. It's exhausting. You can't do it all the time. But if you can find that one thing that you're trying to improve by 10x, and you're willing to have the discipline to do it, just like you did with reviewing your your data every month, then over time you can get there and you can sort of unload all many of the emo- the, the assumptions that you may have in your business about how you do things. It also, and I'm not sure if this came from our discussion earlier or not, but it eliminates choices that you will make as a business, which is always good. The, the sooner you can get to a decision as possible. So eliminating those options right. as well as it's sort of a forcing function, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it makes you make certain decisions that you might not otherwise. And yeah, that's so right. For, for example, you would be really easy to just hire somebody to stand at the press break or several somebody's 24 right. hours a day. Yeah but that won't help you get to your goal and that actually will probably take you further away from it. That's right. Yeah. I love that idea of a forcing function within your business. And I think as a leader, you have to be willing to to be the, maybe you're the forcing function or your decisions end up being the forcing function. And again, not easy, kind of lonely. You may be the only person within your business that believes that, Um, but that has to be okay. You have to be okay with pushing that because the opportunity to build a business that can serve the needs of two or 3 billion people, as I mentioned earlier, is so Uh big, it's worth it. It's worth at least trying to go down this road. Uh Um, And I think it's worth worth it for all of us here in the United States to think this way. And a lot of people already do ahead of me, way ahead of me. Uh Um, But I think it's it's worth it. And you, you mentioned this in the intro, the idea of matter of will, this is the kind of stuff that I'm talking about, Jay. Well, yeah, let's let's get into that. First of all, could you just share some of the examples of the manufacturing that you've seen in other parts of the world, particularly Asia? And then you, I think you have a great story about a China contract manufacturer, yeah. if you could include that. Yeah, I'll tell that story. So I, I was lucky enough to spend some time in China and in Indo- Indonesia working on uh, our contract manufacturing base. This was a company that I ran a few years ago. And so, um, fascinating experience. I loved my time over there. I loved working with the people in China and Indonesia. And there was one particular example where there were about seven or eight people working around a specific manufacturing step. And it was things were happening very manually. And I knew that there was a piece of manufacturing automation that didn't cost a lot of money that would have radically improved that step. It, it would have taken those six or seven people and probably turned into like half a person who was feeding some raw materials into this manufacturing step. So the, the factory owner was pretty resistant to doing it. And, and I thought my assumption was he didn't want to spend the money. Uh-huh. You know, of course, what, why else would you 
not want to not do something like that. And so I said, you know what, we'll pay for it. We'll pay for it. And then six months later, if you're happy, then, you know, we'll work out the cost or whatever. So he agreed and the equipment got delivered and got installed. And about two, three months later, I was headed back there just to, to sort of view my grand accomplishment. And so, <laughs> and so I got there and it was so shocking to see that that equipment was there. It was working, but the same seven or eight people were huddled around the machine. <laughs> so really there was no improvement. And so Fast forward, lots of sort of questions and head scratching, et cetera. What I realized was that that change was not a commercial change. It was a cultural change that they had to make. And the, the idea of firing six or seven or eight people that had social ties throughout the factory, mm-hmm. that was a hard decision for that person to make. And, and so I learned a lot um, by that experience and that the, the change is quite difficult. And we have cultural barriers here too, of a different kind. But I always think about that story and how smart I thought I was in solving his financial problem, but I completely missed what his real challenge was. Yeah, it's that social element of change. And mm-hmm. it's definitely, I've seen that a lot here in the US as well. Sure. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's the challenge for, for, for people who are leading shops around the country. And takes a lot of work to make that happen. And I think they themselves have to figure out what that changes for themselves in order to lead it. So getting back to the statement, a matter of will is what you are saying is that we can do it in the U.S. We can be cost competitive. It's just we have to decide that we will be and figure Mm -hmm. it out. I, I think so. And, and, or I should say, I know so. I may not know how yet. I know a piece of the how, but I know we can do it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when I think about manufacturing locally, um, there's a lot of reasons why that's important. I think we all learned throughout COVID how fragile our supply chains really were. And some critical products like medicine and PPE and and other things were made in other countries. And I think the response to that is to say, well, hold on a second. Are we properly considering all the risks of our supply chains being all over the world? And isn't there a value to having something close by? And so I think that takes uh, more of a strategic view on from a customer on where they want their supply chains to be. I think that the sophisticated customers are beginning to look at their supply chains and understand that they may have critical components, may not be medicine or PPE, but there could be a, uh, a circuit board that is essentially running an entire manufacturing operation or a power plant or whatever the case might be. And that device is made very far away. And that if there's any kind of a, a, a future disruption, they're not going to be able to get that. And so I think companies are beginning to look at that. But I think manufacturers also have to embrace that change by thinking about how they can tell the story of localized manufacturing and tell the story of the benefits of of being local. One of the things we're doing, Jay, that I'm really excited about is that we're now beginning to, and we haven't published anything like this yet because it's way too soon, but Mm -hmm. beginning to look at what are the emissions benefits of making something locally versus transporting that product from wherever it's coming from, even from another part of the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the impact on traffic congestions? What's the impact on safety? Of, of that transportation. Not every customer is gonna, gonna think about that, but the customers, the big customers who are getting pressed by their investors to think about ESG, environmental social governance, 
They're beginning to pay attention to that. So there's an opportunity for US-based manufacturers to embrace this idea of the value of making things locally. And again, like our conversation on technology, it's not easy. It's not easy to do this, but you do have to have the will to say, I'm going to figure out how to tell the story. I can, I'm great at making this product or this component or whatever the case might be. And on a quality basis, I can beat everyone. But let me help sort of tell the story of why that's important beyond just the, the product itself. And so that's what I meant by a matter of will. Um, you know, I think there's probably things that we can do from a regulatory framework or from a, you know, from a legal framework. But honestly, I don't control any of those things, nor would I want to. But I can control how our business makes products and how we communicate what we do to other people. I, I just think it's an exciting time for American manufacturing. Um, you know, just in Houston, we need 100 more companies like Alchemy. In the United States, we need 10,000 more manufacturers. We need hundreds of thousands of more humans who can make stuff, even with automation and all that stuff. You still need lots and lots of humans, skilled humans who can make things. And so what an opportunity right now that we have. I'm glad that we're living in this time. And I just want to embrace it with everything that I've got. I remember I did a podcast with some guys in Michigan who... Mm -hmm. They are in the basic manufacturing of the, I believe it's the seals or the, the bumpers pieces and the shock absorbers. And they were losing business. So they established operations in China and lived over mm -hmm. there. And they decided that they, they were the sons of the, of the uh, patriarchy and the business. Mm -hmm. They decided when they started having families, they didn't want to raise their families in China right. and that they wanted to raise them in the U.S., be around family. Mm -hmm. And so they figured out how to make those parts in the U.S. and be cost competitive overseas. Right. They really understood what they were up against, but they figured it out. It, they had that will and they mm -hmm. made it happen. And it's not just us in manufacturing, though, we need the will of the CEOs and the CFOs to not make a easy decision that doesn't take into account mm -hmm. all of the cost factors and some of the other non-tangibles, such as the emissions, which well, perhaps you can sure. quantify those. I remember when we would play games because we had buyers who were buying on part price and mm -hmm. shipping was not included in the part price. <laughs> right. So we could play some games there. Sure. And the incentives up and down the buy side have to be aligned to really take into account what the true costs are in buying local, whether mm -hmm. it's local in the US or going overseas because there's a lot of costs and that disruption now in the supply chain for sure. Mm -hmm. and, and we're seeing it more in a macro sense in right now with the semiconductors in the automotive industry where right. they're shutting down plants. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think you're right, Jay. I mean, we've got a lot of catching up to do because uh, our supply chains are not ready for this real global manufacturing opportunity, but you know, let's get after it and let's start building those things. So on, on semiconductors, in your example, there's going to have to be investment in yeah. semiconductor, semiconductor manufacturing. You look at sort of electrification in the United States and there's going to have to be investment in things like lithium mining and, and battery manufacturing and, and so on. I mean, the list goes on. None of this is easy, but I'm saying it's worth it. 
And it's fun. Man, manufacturing, the automation. I, I love the automation stuff. And it, when, yeah. when you're doing high volume battery manufacturing, as Tesla is, mm -hmm. I don't know who else is doing it in the U.S., but there is a lot of automation there. You know what? Actually, I'll just throw in as a side. Mm -hmm. what I, one of the things that Tesla doesn't get credit for is pushing the envelope on manufacturing. Yeah. And they commissioned and are using now the largest stamping that's ever been made in the automotive world. And here you have Tesla. Why the hell were GM, <laughs> Ford, and Chrysler doing this years and years ago? They are stamping out a frame and it had never been done before, but isn't that the role of the leaders? And, be, yeah. and GM and Ford and Chrysler just didn't make the investment. I think we go, I think we were caught flat footed, honestly. And, um, you know, I guess it's the, I hate using business cliches, but I'll use one. I think Jim Collin talks about good being the enemy of great. And, you know, who wouldn't want to make money year in, year out and be able to feel good about that? It does feel good to make money year in, year out. But mm -hmm. I think we as leaders have to have an eye to, but what's the real opportunity? What's the real threat? And the way I think about this um, is that I bet you there's some groups of manufacturing leaders in some other country who are probably thinking the same thing and they should not beat us to that punch. And so pick country, whatever that country is, uh -huh. let's say there, there's a thousand manufacturing leaders and they figure this out. They figure out how to be the, the global manufacturing engine of the planet. Wouldn't that be a shame if they beat us to it? And I'm not saying that as sort of in a rah-rah patriotic way, even though those things are important. I'm saying to say that we can do it. We've got the raw materials, people, supply chains, everything to do. Why not us? Why don't we do it? I have a question for you it's with your Asia background. And one thing that has perplexed me is the cost of materials is or seems to be higher in the U.S. than, say, over in China mm -hmm. and maybe Indonesia, that the buyers are essentially buying the parts for the cost of materials. Right. Is that a government-led subsidy of materials, or is there something else fundamentally different in how material cost is, say, in China versus in the U.S.? I think there's that. I mean, uh, in my experience, it's hard to get real transparency on how things are priced in a, in a place like China. Mm -hmm. I think sort of the entity to entity pricing is probably not clear to us. And they're probably making strategic decisions that perhaps we're not making here, where we may be thinking more competitively, they may be thinking more collaboratively. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can argue like which, which is the best long term. But I think that if there is such a difference in mindset on pricing, I think you can, you can get yourself in a position where the pricing certainly seems lower. And it seems like that some countries like China have made a long-term strategic decision to manufacture things. And, and perhaps those kinds of government programs are there to sort of enable that. But it's still, I think it boils down to creating um, opportunities around localizing manufacturing, including supply chain. And if you, if you really price things in on an apples to apples basis, then I don't know if there's that much of a difference. And if there is a bit of a difference, maybe that's where we don't participate for the time being, but there's enough of an opportunity where you can compete and let's focus on that. Because as we said, there's a lot of rebuilding we need to do. So let's right. go start making things and figuring out the supply chain as we do. One of the things that you're doing 
to contribute is you will be putting out a podcast shortly. Can you right. tell us about that podcast? What's sure. the name? What, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm super excited about it, Jay. Thanks for, thanks for mentioning that. So the podcast is called Manufacture Houston, manufacturehouston.com. If they go to the website now, there's not a lot there, but it is a beginning. Mm-hmm. The whole concept of Manufacture Houston is to tell the story of people that are making things here in Houston. And so that could be people who are actual manufacturers, people in the in the innovation ecosystem. It could even be uh, a one-person shop that's making something really cool, but they're putting their heart and soul into it. So for me, it's really just an opportunity to tell the story of what's happening here in Houston. Now, I've been in Houston since 1990. It's been an amazing place for me in so many different ways. And and so my hope is that this podcast honors all the people that are here making things. So I'm really excited about it. I'm, and getting back to our conversation about learning things, I'm, I'm sure the first few episodes are going to be really awful as I navigate my way through it, but that's okay. I'm going to learn how to do it and hopefully get good enough over time where people will enjoy enjoy it. You know, it's and I thought a lot, a lot about this. I think my, my instinct is always to go big and scale up something globally. And this is very different. All I care about is what's happening in this city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think that, I think someone could start a podcast man, that says manufacture Dallas or manufacture Chicago, or manufacture Des Moines, Iowa. I mean, I think there's stories to be told about what's happening in, in, in your community that people probably don't even know about that live in mm-hmm. your community. So that's what it's all about. You know, one funny story about that is I registered the domain name manufacturehouston.com and it was available. And I chuckled to myself because I thought, why on earth was that domain name available? How come someone right? <laughs> someone should have grabbed that a long time ago. And not that it was a big creative thing on my part. I mean, to me, it's the most sensible name for mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. So it's ironic and sort of indicative that that domain name was available. So that's what it's all about. Lots of opportunity. And perhaps you have inspired <laughs> someone in Chicago or Atlanta or Nashville. Sure. It doesn't matter where. There's manufacturing going on everywhere. There so is. if you want to try your, your hand at podcasting, if you're listening to this, it's as you can tell, the production quality, we're, we're not... Uh, we're not the public radio broadcasting right. network here, but we're we're doing our best, and I'm enjoying the conversations with people like you, Mush, and and others. Right. And and just to wrap up, this has been a great conversation, a lot of fun. I really enjoyed hearing your resounding yes answer to manufacturing in the U.S. and you know, some solid steps on how we can make it real, and. I think that we are all the better that you left corporate America and put your skills and talents to use now in, in the custom part world. And thanks for doing that. Thanks for sharing your story and your philosophy with our audience. And I, I love the North Star metric, the, the BHAG that you have. I think you'll get there. You don't know how, but <laughs> if, if you don't have that guiding light, whatever it is, then it's hard to take the path, right? It is. Yeah. And so thank you for the invitation and for your time, Jay. I, I do want to leave with sort of one final note. And that's yes. I think I shared with you before that. And I've thought a lot about how I want to spend my time over the next 25 years and what kind of difference 
do I want to make um, to the people that I love uh, and to the city that I live in, country and beyond? And a lot of this is influenced and inspired by my parents. So my dad was a pipe fitter who is now re uh, retired and my mother was a seamstress. And so I grew up in a family of, of people who made stuff and made stuff with their hands. And both of them were from small villages in India. But I remember growing up watching them read and learn all the time. They barely had a high school education, but I think they're two of the most educated people that I've ever met in my life because I kept on learning. And so that has sort of influenced how, I've, how I'm choosing to work. And a few years ago, two or three years ago, I established a, a moonshot goal for me. Again, no idea how I'm going to get there, but I know I'm going to get there. And that over the next 25 years, I want to improve the lives of a billion industrial workers. The billion is a big number. Um, how do I get there? I think I've got some ways to get there, but I know I can improve the lives of people that are a lot like my parents. And that's deeply important to me. And so for me, it's rallying capital and talent, technology, and so on, all to serve that one mission for me. And um, and I hope that I hope I get to do it beyond 25 years, but I know I'm going to do it for the next 25. I love that moonshot. That that's wonderful. So kudos to you for making that effort and wanting to do that. And if you don't reach a billion and you reach only a hundred million, I think you still probably successful. Worth it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Today I'll just gonna focus on one or two. <laughs> well, Mush, how can people reach you if they want to connect? Sure. Yeah, best way is on, on LinkedIn. So if you just if you just search my name on LinkedIn, Mush Khan, M-U-S-H-K-H-A-N. Um, you'll find me. I don't think there's a lot of mush cons out there. So if you do come across two or three, look for the one in Houston and the one with Alchemy Industrial in their name and or their description. And that's the best way. So please direct message me on LinkedIn. I love to start up conversations there and hopefully it turns into great friendships and even business relationships. Well, thank you again, Mush. Really appreciate it. And listeners, manufacturing in the US, it's a matter of will and imagination. My imagination gives me a vision of the U.S. being the dominant manufacturing economy in 20 years and keeping manufacturing local. Manufacture Houston, manufacture Boston. And just between you and me, that's why I co-founded Paperless Parts. I want to give shop owners the same tools that the big boys are using to make them competitive because that is what's going to bring down costs and keep the manufacturing in the U.S. So what do your imagination and will tell you? Until next time, keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Have a beautiful day. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to The Job Shop Show.